can I be sane and do this? Can I be authentic and do this? Do I want to be famous and rich or do I want to be an artist? And so I used that as my roadmap to guide me on my decision making. And I turned down a million dollar signing bonus as a homeless kid. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. The woman you're about to hear from is someone whose voice you're probably going to instantly recognize. She is a four-time Grammy nominee who has sold more than 30 million albums. She grew up in Homer, Alaska, and started singing on stage with her parents at just five years old. But offstage, her life was full of turmoil. By the time she was 15, she left an abusive home and found herself homeless. She was discovered while playing gigs at coffee houses and originally turned down a million-dollar signing bonus. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Today, in addition to her impressive career as a singer and songwriter, she is a best-selling author, an actress, and an executive producer. And it's my pleasure to welcome you, Jewel, to No Limits. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So your story begins in Alaska, Mm -hmm. Homer, Alaska, small town. Your parents, when you're eight years old, split. Mm -hmm. How big of an impact do you think that made on your life, your career, where you ended up? Divorce is always difficult. Um, I think the defining factors were for me is that my mom left, which is a difficult thing to deal with. Uh, And then my dad moved us to Homer. We moved back to the homestead. We're incredibly poor. Um, My mom and dad had a show in in hotels for tourists, and I sang as part of the family act since I was five. So at eight, I took over my mom's place in the act, and we started touring honky-tonks and bars. And So I was probably the only fourth grader that went from elementary school right to the bar. (laughs) (laughs) In the bars Um, in fourth grade. But I learned a lot. I was always a very observant kid. I liked to Mm. observe. I think I always kind of had a writer's heart. And I was in a lot of pain. My dad had a pretty traumatic childhood, and they went to Vietnam. And he had PTSD, and he didn't know what those words meant. It wasn't even really talked about at the time. And so he turned to drinking to try and handle his anxiety. Of course, that never works out well, and he became abusive around age 8. And so with all those changes and now singing in bars, I had a front row seat to watching people who were in pain and who were using alcohol to try and handle their emotions. And as a young woman who was at risk in pretty seedy, rough places, I realized I needed my wits about me. I couldn't numb out because I was in pain. I needed to be sensitive. And I learned to find safety and sensitivity instead of in armor. And that was one of the most valuable things and learning that you don't outrun pain. So you have to try and face it as you as you are experiencing it. And because I was a student of nature and because I lived on this beautiful ranch, I was able to watch the tide come in and out and I was able to watch storms come and go. And I realized our thoughts are like that. Our bad times are like that. They come and go if you give them time. And if we hang on to our pain, you literally hang on to your pain. You're not going to let it go. It doesn't get to exit your life. Were you thinking all of these thoughts (laughs) and coming up with all of this on your own or was there something else around you, another person? Every time I sat down to write... I was always amazed by what I wrote. Um, I later studied philosophy when I was probably 14, and I read Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. If I could refine that just a little bit, I would say I perceive what I think, therefore I am. So if I could perceive I'm sad, I'm something other than sad. If I can perceive I'm happy, I'm even something other than happy. I'm the observer of happy. So who is the observer? And because I observed so much and because I started writing to handle my pain as an 8-year-old instead of turning to other 
things, um, I developed a mindfulness practice. And when you go inward for answers and you get out of just your head, it's amazing what information you get access to. Um, and I was able over the years to turn back to mindfulness again and again and again, look inward for answers and come up with some pretty interesting solutions to a lot of serious problems like anxiety and panic attacks and homelessness and, you know, all those types of things. You, 15 years old, left home. Mm. What was your mindset at the time? I'd worked most of my life, all my life, and uh, it was difficult. It was it was scary to, you know, come up with your rent money every month, um, not always have money for food. I was hitchhiking to work so I wasn't old enough to drive. But I looked at this idea of nature versus nurture, and I knew that if I didn't receive good nurture, how would I ever get to know my nature? And it's what I call emotional English. You know, we inherit genetics, but you also inherit emotional languages. And if your family's avoidant or combative or, uh, you know, subversive, um, passive aggressive, even if you hate it, if you're in an abusive household, my dad was hit as a child and he grew up as a child saying, I'm never going to hit my kids. This is horrible. But all it does is create a vacuum. You have to learn a new behavior to be able to create new behavior. So I call it your emotional English. And I knew at 15 I had to learn a new emotional language so I didn't repeat the cycle I was raised by. And that really set me on my journey of what today is called mindfulness. That word didn't exist at the time. And so all of my songs, you know, everything that I've done in my career has been about that journey of how do I rewire my brain? How do I become the architect of a life versus something that just inherits a life? And I'm tied up in the passenger seat and my life is wreaking havoc with me while I'm you know, being reactive to a life I inherited. You were so mature for your age. You had so much <laughs> wisdom at such a young point in life. What do you think it was about your life that helped you see all of these things so early on? I think my willingness to be uncomfortable, um, to sit in discomfort because I knew it would pass because I watched nature and I knew nothing was forever. So if you're willing to sit and be uncomfortable for a minute, it will pass and it will subside. Um, you know, neurological brain science has showed actually that we process m emotional pain in the same center of our brain that we do physical pain. And so that's why people avoid uncomfortable feelings. It literally, your brain can't tell the difference between a broken heart and a broken leg. You, you, so you really psychologically try to avoid it, which I get. But if you can just trust the nature cycles and realize I used a tree as a metaphor, it's like if the branches of a tree hung onto the wind, it would pull the tree down. But if the branches just bend and let the weather pass, you're going to be okay and you're going to weather the storm. And so that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a hardwood tree to let the weather pass that had good roots, which were my value systems. I love that analogy. Mm -hmm. That's a perfect analogy. <laughs> you were discovered a couple years later in a coffee house. What went through your head at that time, coming from where you came from to all of a sudden head of a record label saying, Jewel, we want you to sing and you're going to be known by millions of people all over the world? When I was homeless, I had a bidding war over me. It was bizarre. Every label was bidding on me. Um, and you're homeless at the time. And I'm homeless. You know, I don't think they had any idea that I was homeless. Were you hiding that from them? Were you, were you insecure about that? I was very careful that I didn't tell people that I was homeless because it makes you vulnerable to your prey animal. Um, and when you're homeless, it's really about survival. So I didn't share with people that I was homeless, where I slept, what happened. You know what I mean? That was a very – it just makes you vulnerable to predators. So I didn't really talk about it very much. Uh, and I never wanted attention for negative reasons. I wanted attention for hopefully my talents and for what was right. Um, and How when did I started you navigate that? 
how did you navigate the desire to be known for your talents and also this bidding war that was happening when you're so young? What I actually wanted was to fight for my authenticity, that safety was in talking about my flaws, not in hiding them. Um, so I wrote very vulnerable songs, you know, that were very honest and very gut-wrenching. And when record labels came to sign me, I knew that fame was a path a lot of people lost their footing on. And I was a real great candidate for, get, for that because fame doesn't change who you are. It accentuates who you are. So if you're insecure, you get more insecure. And if you need outward approval to have any sense of self-esteem, you're going to be a black bottomless pit of needing outward approval. And so I knew I was a real candidate for, for trouble. Um, and so I knew I had to be most diligent about my number one job was to figure out how to be a good human and a whole human. My number two job was to build a music career. And so I always approached it that way. Every single business decision I made went, can I be sane and do this? Can I be authentic and do this? Do I want to be famous and rich or do I want to be an artist? And so I used that as my roadmap to guide me on my decision making. And I turned down a million dollar signing bonus as a homeless kid and took a big back end because I learned that you owe that money back. If my record wasn't successful within a year, I would have been dropped. I would have ended up homeless again. And I would have had to make a record that was guaranteed to be a hit, which I didn't know how to do. I was a folk singer at the height of grunge. I knew the odds of that working were pretty slim. So if I wanted to bank on being an artist, I had to I had to construct a deal that allowed me the freedom to grow a career. Hardwood grows slowly has always been one of my mottos because I love the tree metaphor so much. And so it was the hardwood grows slowly thing. I would build a fan base. I would earn what I had. I wouldn't get it ahead of time or up front. How did you figure out the business side of this? Because it's so inside baseball, most people on mm. the outside coming in wouldn't even have a clue. Yeah. There's a book that a guy named Don Passenheim, I think, is a music industry lawyer. He wrote a book called Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business. You looked at the book. So I read the book. Wow. <laughs> and I always had read a lot. And so I learned about mechanicals and royalties and that this was a loan and how to de-risk. I had to de-risk myself. You know, Good I had to keep you. a label engaged and excited about me and my career and invested in me, but I couldn't cost so much that they had to, you know, cut their losses if I wasn't successful within a year. Um, and so I just had to learn how to navigate that. Did you ever want to be a celebrity? Was there ever like a part of you in the in the traditional sense of celebrity? Was there ever a part of you that heard what someone was selling and thought for a second, yeah, that would be cool? I was very scared of it. It's terrified me. You know, I was a girl that grew up on a ranch with all boys, no mirror, no outhouse, no running water, coal stove. And I looked at magazines, and I wasn't that pretty girl. It just made me feel like a horror. It made me feel ugly and terrible. I think that art as propaganda is very damaging to the human spirit. And fame puts you under a spotlight that I didn't think I could withstand because I knew I had a lot of emotional damage and trauma. And so... My antidote to that was making a folk record. I didn't think it was going to be some huge super hit. And I led with my flaws, and the Internet had just come around. And so I was able to talk about my flaws and lead with my flaws. And I never once have used my art as propaganda to make myself seem more perfect than I was. And that allowed me to be a human. And it allowed me to have a human interaction even though I was in the spotlight and in the public eye. So for people out there who aspire to do what you've done, what's your advice? Figure out if you want to be famous or an artist. If you want to be famous, you have a very different path to take. You're going to do very different things, which is fine. I don't have any judgment on either one. You know, you're going to work hard either way. You earn it. If you want to be an artist, then you have to protect your artistry and you have to structure things that protect it. And the only leverage you have is your connection to your fan base. And people don't remember perfection. 
They don't remember perfect singers. They don't remember perfect songs. They remember emotional connection. And so if you can emotionally connect with a human being with your voice and your guitar or your piano or whatever it is you're doing and cause them to emotionally invest with you, you have something. Then you just have to go about it the old-fashioned way and create enough of a fan base that you have enough leverage to negotiate any kind of deal for yourself. You don't need a record deal these days to make money. You can make records yourself, but you have to be willing to work and build a fan base. If you want to just be famous, then, you know, go to a label. You're going to get a really bad deal. You're going to have writers write songs for you, which is actually really a lot less stress, I think, probably. (laughs) Um, Sounds good in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, And... You know, you're going to go out and you're going to work your you work your hiney off either way. It's just what are your goals and know that ahead of time. If you were to start today doing all the things that you started many years ago now, how does that how is that different in your mind? I mean, there's now you have the internet, you have social media, and I think about this a lot with my career. It's such a different world. You can put your craft out there for way more people to see much faster, but you also get that instant feedback. And when you talk about trying to shut out some of the negativity and allow yourself to embrace the craft but not take any of these you know let it blow past you Mm -hmm. how do you work through that and what do you think for artists currently who are just getting started how they should think through that i still think there's the right way to do things which is hardwood grows slowly you know the hardwood trees live the longest have the longest careers did it the right way and there's steps to go through and it's earning it um shortcuts aren't to be trusted so social media can be incredibly helpful um it also creates more noise there's just a million more people out there playing their music on the internet so how do you cut through the noise and so really it's about that authentic connection it's about refining your craft and it's about making sure every time you do it consistently you're doing it with real connection behind it Um, Don't just do it for the sake of doing it. Not another post, not another video, whatever it is. Yeah, make sure it's connecting for a reason and that you're doing your job. And so if you're posting a video of you singing in a coffee shop and everybody's talking while you're singing, don't do it. You know, like I refused to let people talk while I sang. What did you did you say something to everybody? I just looked at every night as a puzzle, and if I could figure out the right combination on this Rubik's cube, I could make everybody pay attention to me, whether they knew me or not. And sometimes it was holding a long note out and just holding it so long that people went, "What the heck's that girl doing?" <laughs> sometimes it was making up lyrics about somebody right on the spot, right in front of me, who wasn't listening, and it forced everybody to pay attention. Sometimes it was stopping in the middle of my song and saying, "Hey." I hear you. I'm two feet from you. I'm singing. If you don't want to hear me, I get it. Why don't you step outside until my set's done? Whatever it took is what I did, and I really recommend that to young artists because you have to be willing. If you don't believe in yourself and don't have enough pride in yourself to believe and stand up for yourself, why is anybody else going to? And that isn't arrogance. That's just saying I take what I do very seriously, and I would appreciate if you took what I did seriously, and I'll earn it. I won't expect you to give it to me. I'll earn it, but... If I earn it, you better give it to me. <laughs> you have accomplished so much beyond being a singer-songwriter. You're an author. You are creating the mindfulness practice now in this website to go along with it. You're an actor. You're an executive producer. You're in this new series. Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, acting, I always really enjoyed. I hoped to do it simultaneously with my music career. My first movie was an Ang Lee film, which is an amazing first film to get. But I realized after that movie that to have a full-time dual career was going to be 365 days a year, and I would never have a real personal life. And again, I wanted my life to be my best work of art, 
not just my art. And so I made the decision not to pursue acting. And then when my son was about nine months old or something, so not long ago, four years ago, um, Lifetime came to me and said, do you want to do portray June Carter Cash? And I'm a huge fan of hers. So I did a movie. It was over in a month. I got to bring my son to set. It was a really great experience. I got to push myself creatively. But I'm still not going to move to Hollywood and go on auditions, and you know. And it's not then for you. He's just not. That wasn't for me. And uh, then Hallmark came to me and offered me this mystery series where you'll do nine movies. I shoot three a year. It takes three weeks to shoot them. It's great for being a mom. And you love murder mysteries, I read. I love murder mysteries. Like Angela Lansbury is <laughs> my hero. I'm trying to talk her into being in the next one. <laughs> What, really? I hope she will. I say it every interview, hoping she's listening. You have a T-shirt. I saw this in yes, one of your interviews. She's my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> Keep putting it out there. I have a good feeling about this. What one question that I've always had for you since I very first heard the song? In the end, only kindness matters. Mm. Do you still believe that? I do. When I was homeless, losing. Hope is a funny word. I'm not actually a huge fan of the word hope because I think it's an elegant form of disguising fear. I hope I make it. It's actually you saying, I'm afraid I won't. So I have a funny relationship with the word hope. But if you lose, when you're in dire straits, when you're homeless, if you lose faith in humanity, if you lose faith in yourself, if you lose in the belief of a better life for yourself, you are sunk. And your life will never get better. So the number one thing I had to fight for when I was homeless was my humanity because you are dehumanized. You are turned into an animal. Every day you think about food, shelter, safety, period. People look at you like you have leprosy. People walk by you and sneer. You know, I wash my hair in public restrooms and women would be like, how does she end up like that? I bet she does drugs. Like you're just treated subhuman. And fighting for my humanity has really been a lot of what my life has been about. And not just my humanity, not just survival, but I'm going to thrive. And I'm not talking about success or money or anything like that. Um, so when I was homeless, that's when I came up with that line and, and wrote that lyrics to that song, actually, about watching my hands. It was my first mindfulness exercise. And when somebody would walk by me and they would just smile at me, I can't tell you what it did. And that's why I put in a song called I'm Sensitive that we are everyday angels. Like we answer prayers for each other and we don't even realize we do it. The simplest acts of kindness, you have no idea what somebody's going through in their day and how that's going to buoy them or how that's going to sink them and what they're going through. And I think kindness is an incredibly profound practice. I ask everybody this who comes on my show, what is the worst piece of advice that you have received? Probably lots. Um... I think the most damaging things that ever happened to me were when people talked me out of my feelings or talked me out of my instincts and got me so in my head that it turned me around. That's like having the lights turned off. It was like you didn't have a compass all of a sudden if every time I turned off my relationship with my instincts or my intuition. How do you get um, it back? It's always there. It's just the anxiety and fear. It's like if you have a radio station and you want to tune into your intuition, fear and anxiety are static and so you can't hear it. And so that's why a mindfulness practice, um, a daily paying attention practice, starts to get rid of your anxiety so that you can actually hear your own echo feedback system, which is your gut. I'm friends with a lot of great scientists, and they're like, scientific discovery doesn't happen by thinking a lot. It comes from getting outside of your thoughts enough to have a eureka moment. Um, and that's the same with creativity. Great creativity happens. It doesn't happen in your brain. It happens when you get a break from your brain and the inspiration can happen in those aha moments. So for you, set the scene for us. How do you get there? Um, 
my mindfulness practice. I believe in meditation. It's very simple. On my uh, website, I show people what I do to meditate. Um, I call it paying attention because the word meditation kind of has so many connotations for people in so many ways. It's really just taking a brain break and learning to turn off the static. So if you want to have less anxiety in your noise, go to my website, jewelneverbroken.com, and look at the paying attention module, and it will just show you a very simple breathing exercise that helps you become the observer of your thoughts instead of just being caught up in your thoughts all the time. And that, I'd say, is the single first best first step. Thank you so much, Jewel. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's someone you think we should have on the show, let me know. You can tweet me at Rebecca Jarvis. And of course, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. And special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. It is a big one. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Michelle Bancardo, Steve Jones, Erica Scott, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.